that you are. Thank you that you grace us with your presence here today. Thank you that you are indescribable. Thank you that you've created us. Thank you that you've given to us the most precious gift that we could ever have, and that is your son who now lives and reigns within us. We have so many riches, Lord. Oh, Lord, may this morning as we come to look at your word and open your word as we continue on in this book of 1 Timothy, Lord, may we pause today to really reflect upon who you are, Jesus, what you've done for us and how we should respond to that. In your precious name, amen. Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm Gail. <laughs> I'm wearing a skirt. <laughs> so we've been looking at the book of 1 Timothy. Jonathan's been taking us through that. And this morning we come to a section in 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 16. Before we do, I just want to tell you about a little trip that Warren and I had just recently. We actually went to Vietnam. And over in Vietnam, a beautiful country, beautiful people, um, very Buddhist country, very hard to see any evidence of Christian faith anywhere. There are some Catholic churches, but predominantly Buddhist. And if you go um, anywhere, you will see that life happens on the streets. Life is lived on the streets. And outside the front of every little workplace, every little shop, there is a Buddha and there are um, preparations and uh, food and offerings made to Buddha to appease Buddha and to try and gain good standing with Buddha. So this really overwhelmed me. But one of the things that overwhelmed me perhaps more than that, even more than that, was the traffic. The traffic in Vietnam is incredible. In Hanoi alone, there are a million motorbikes. Probably more, oh, actually there's three million, I think, people in Hanoi, but there's a million motorbikes. This is a typical street and what amazed Warren and I was that there are no seemingly obvious codes of behaviour for traffic. That is a street where you can see you can't even find a gap to walk across the street. The only code of conduct that we saw was actually a sign that forbid cars to go on the street. So you tell me, we couldn't work it out. What was really amazing was that there were no even, not even any codes of conduct for behaviour as to how to protect yourself. You could or you couldn't wear a helmet. It didn't matter. And in some cases, we actually saw up to five people sitting on one motorbike just driving around. Mums with little babies, no, no protection. It was really just quite extraordinary. But the thing that really got to us more than anything else was that there was order in this chaos. We really couldn't believe it. We realised that in order to cross the street, you actually take a step of faith, and it really was a step of faith, and you move off the curb and you pray like crazy. And, and this is me. Hang on. 
And I've just made it to the other side of the street and there I'm going, thank you, Lord, I'm still alive. <laughs> and what happens is, as you step across the street, the traffic actually just move in and around you and the trick is not to stop. If you stop, you upset the traffic and then you'll get run over. So you just keep walking and they move in and out and around you. And it's just incredible. But what was more incredible for us was the fact that amidst this ordered chaos, there was politeness, there seemed to be an unwritten code of conduct. And you know, psychologists and educationalists tell us that it's no good if we are given just a series of instructions about how to behave unless we understand there's a good reason for that. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, I know in myself that if someone just tells me to do something, I just don't go ahead and do it unless I know why I should do it. I think we're just built that way. And for me, when I look at the people in Vietnam, I think although there are no overt codes of conduct for driving a motorbike, I think the Vietnamese people have internalised a greater reason as to why they should drive respectfully. And that was witnessed in the way that they treated each other. It was so obvious that here is a people that respects and honours each other in daily life. Everything is communal. The street life, eating on the streets, selling on the streets, is all communal and there's an overwhelming sense that here is a people that values something much deeper than just getting on a bike and knowing how to ride a bike. They actually have learnt to internalise the deep value and respect for each other. And that spills forth in their behaviour. And, you know, we've been looking at the book of 1 Timothy and Paul went with Timothy to Ephesus and left Timothy there to help the church survive but also to thrive in that place. And Timothy, as we know, was a young man. And Paul, a few months later, writes this letter back to Timothy with all of these instructions for godly living that we've been looking at over the vast number of weeks. And there have been instructions about basically how to conduct yourself in the household of God, in the church. And they've covered aspects like propriety in worship, prayer, codes of conduct for men and women, what to expect from a leader within the church. And here we come to today's uh, scripture reading. And Paul says, although I'd hoped to come to you soon, I'm writing to you so that you will, and, and so that if I'm delayed, you will know how to conduct yourselves in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He was revealed in flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was proclaimed among the nations, was believed in the world 
and was taken up to glory. And I believe that Paul pauses at this point in 1 Timothy because he's loaded Timothy up with all of these instructions and he's thought, you know what? Instructions alone won't change human behaviour. You know what we need? We need to stop and we need to understand the reason for why. Why I have given you all of these instructions. And today we're going to look at the reason. He says that we must conduct ourselves well because we are in God's household. And here Paul has borrowed a term right out of the culture that he was immersed in, the Greco-Roman culture. And in those days, households, particularly households of masters who had great wealth, were really quite large. They consisted not only of the immediate family, but they consisted of extended family members. They consisted of servants and slaves and administrators. And the whole role of everyone within that household was to know their roles, was to know their responsibilities, was to conduct themselves in a way that would achieve one end and one end only. And that end was to ensure that the master's business succeeded. And, you know, Paul is saying the master of this household here is the living God. That's our master. That's who we serve. And when we come gathered together in this household here, the master of this household is the living God. And as we come, people, we come and we proclaim by our behaviour, by who we are, who this master is. And in some ways, Paul is saying, that the success of God really depends upon us and on how we conduct ourselves. You know, there's a privilege for living in God's presence. We sang beautiful songs this morning that really brought it home to us that we are in God's presence here today. But the privilege carries with it the responsibility to live a life that is worthy of the one who has called us. You know, sometimes I grieve that we are not, we don't make our church attendance more of a priority. You know, it's not that we we should come. We have to know the reason why we come. I grieve that we're so spasmodic That sometimes I have to say, I believe that we in the household of God put other things as a priority rather than being here together. And that household denotes a concept of family. And sometimes I feel that, you know, the church, although it's broader than just coming here on a Sunday morning, the church is like a family. And I know in my family... The greatest times we had was when we gathered together for a meal because that was the one time in the whole day that we could say, you know, we really 
saw each other. We, we did fellowship with each other. And as the kids got older, the household meal became more like a restaurant with kids coming and going and eating at different times. And you know what? It felt like our family was fragmenting at that time because we didn't all come together. And that's what happens in families and then kids go off and go their own ways and you have to adjust to that and you lose that sense of unity. Well, Paul is saying this is a household and when we don't honour it, when we don't make the coming together on a Sunday a priority and when one of you is missing, we all grieve. We grieve because this is the one opportunity in a week where we can come and be together in the household of the living God. So I implore you, make it your priority to come here every week. Tell the others that aren't coming every week, come here because this is the household of the living God and your actions and your behaviour are significant to God. But not only is the church a household where the living God resides, it's the pillar. It upholds the foundation of truth. You know, my husband, he's a builder. And he's all, as long as I have known him in his building trade, he is always impressed upon the fact that the most important part of building the church, of building the church, <laughs> building the church and building a house or a structure is the foundation. And it's the one thing that he will not delegate to anyone else. There are other parts of the building that he will delegate to, but I know I've been with him. He will always go and check out that foundation is poured correctly before any further building continues. And God says that we, the household of God, upholds the foundation of truth. We uphold the foundation. That's a huge responsibility that God gives to us. Paul says, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. You know, the world is watching. This is what Paul is saying. The world is watching us. We reflect God through our conduct. We reflect God on how we treat the household of God, how we treat his truth in our lives. And we have to make sure that that foundation is based on the word of God. Because in 2 Corinthians 3, 2 to 3, he says, you yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but written on human hearts. Paul is saying here that we uphold the foundation of truth by the very way that we honour and receive Christ within our hearts. It's a huge responsibility. The pillar here, in, in, in Paul's time, pillars didn't actually uphold the building. They were more decoration. They were usually out front of a building and they were the um, outside adornment or the appearance 
of a church or a building. And Paul is saying that we, as the household of God, are the appearance of God to a, to a cynical, to a lost world. And the question has to be, how are we upholding the truth of God? How are we reflecting God as the household of the living God, as the pillar and foundation of the truth to a lost and hurting world? I'm challenged by this. I'm challenged by this. But Paul goes on to say, you know what? More than godly conduct being essential because it is embodied and reflects the household of God. More than our godly conduct represents, represents us as the way we uphold the truth. More than that, the way we conduct ourselves in this household proclaims the great mystery of godliness. It's strange language, isn't it? But you know what? For thousands and thousands of years, millions and millions of people have asked the question, is God real? Is he real? And you know what? 2,000 years ago, God answered that question emphatically, definitively, when the mystery of whether God was really real was actually solved. When Jesus Christ, as the hidden salvation plan of God, conceived before time, was revealed and fulfilled in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul wants us to pause. Paul wants us to stop and really say, do we really get it? Do we really understand the incredible riches that we have received as a result of us now knowing Christ? Those that went before never knew God in the way that God revealed himself to us through Jesus Christ. Oh, what a privilege. What an honour. What an incredible responsibility. And Paul is saying, this is the reason why. This is the reason why I want your lives to be exemplary. I want your lives to reflect the greatness of the mystery of godliness revealed in Christ Jesus. In Colossians 1.27, he says, To whom God wished to make known how great are the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul is saying, pause, the hope of glory, the hope of this mystery which has now been solved you know what? It rests on you and it rests on me. It rests on this household. I know what you think about that, but for me, that frightens me. 
that uh, overwhelms me, that fills me with awe, that should transform me, that should change me, that should check me every day of my life. The result is a wonderful truth that the mystery of godliness is Christ himself. We saw that DVD. That only gave us a section, a little bit of knowledge about who this Christ is and what he does in our lives. This Christ has been revealed and he is seen not to be an abstract ideal or some part of a God personality, but actually a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, Paul is linking this incredible mystery to faith and behaviour because the mystery has now been solved. And it's so amazing, our lives and our behaviour and our conduct should respond accordingly. You want to be a good Christian? Well, here is the secret. Everything is wrapped up in our union with Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to unpack who this Christ is, the person of this mystery. And he does this by quoting a hymn which would have been made known to the Ephesians at that time. And the first part of that hymn says, he was revealed in flesh. You know, the answer to the question what is God like, is answered in the person of the mystery. The grace of God is visible through the appearing of Christ. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.10, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death, and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, through the truth. The answer to the question, what is God like, is answered in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son is the exact radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things through his powerful word. Christ was both fully human and fully God and the main purpose for him coming was to reflect God, to restore humankind and give to man a purpose for living. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is why we do what we do. In Galatians 4, 4 to 5, it says, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons and daughters. You know, Jesus came fully human and it was the way that he came that showed us how much he loved us and therefore how much we should honour him by the way we live. Father Neville Figgis said the Messiah who showed up wore a different kind of glory than the one the Jews were looking for. 
He wore the glory of humility. God is great, the cry of the Muslims, is a truth which needed no supernatural teaching to men. But God is little? That is the truth which Jesus taught man. The God who roared, who could order armies and empires about like pawns on a chessboard, this God emerged in Palestine as a baby, a baby who couldn't speak, who couldn't eat solid food or control his bladder, who depended on a teenager for shelter, food and love. This is the God who was revealed in flesh. Jesus' birth was normal. We know that from scripture, that he was a developing fetus in a womb. He came into the world through normal birth and his life ran like ours from womb to tomb. He came into a poverty-stricken country that was occupied by a cruel regime, marginalised, a birth clothed in unquestionable impropriety because he was conceived out of wedlock. And Jesus chose to be born in flesh, in humiliation. And when I contemplate this, I can celebrate my humanity knowing how Christ emphasised his. And I don't know, but if this doesn't stop you in your tracks, then you just don't get it. You see, he appeared in flesh, the God that millions of people wanted to know for thousands of years, revealed himself in a way that enabled us to relate to him. He lived, walked and talked among us and that is how far God will go to reach you. So what do we learn about God when we think of how he joined the human race in the flesh? Well, I think about how much he loved us and how much I should honour him with my life and by the way I live my life. And he was vindicated by the Spirit. You know, anybody can claim to be God in the flesh. People have over the centuries. But Jesus proved it. And he, Paul is saying the greatest example of Jesus proving who he said he was was through the resurrection. Christ didn't need to prove that for himself. He didn't need to vindicate himself. He knew who he was, but he knew the world needed him to know that. Dr Francis Schaeffer says that even if only a few in Christendom get back to the spiritual foundation of godly living, the Lord can move among the bride of Christ through the Holy Spirit so that she might show forth the fact that God does truly exist and that both the love and the holiness of God can be exhibited in the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, I am convinced that we limit God's spirit, his power in our lives. I am so convinced. You know, a couple of Wednesdays ago, Susie Rosevib, to our prayer meeting, brought um, a devotion and she had a revelation about the power of the living Lord Jesus Christ, the, that same resurrected power that now lives and reigns within us. And it was from Ephesians 1, 17 to 21. 
And it says, I keep asking, you can follow in your Bibles if you have it, Ephesians 1, 17 to 21. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you will know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that could be given, not only in this present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, the household of the living God, which is his body. Do you see how it all intertwines? For his household, which is his body. I'm convinced we don't open ourselves up through faith to receive enough of this resurrected power in our lives in order to live godly, holy lives which honour the mystery of godliness. I'm so convinced that we don't. That same power is able to convict us when we're wrong Teach us when we need it. Guide us when we need to see the path. Show us how to get there. You know, someone said to me, how do you know when someone is filled by the Spirit of God? And in some churches, there is a belief that you know because you can speak a certain tongue language. Well, I have to say, I have to say I have the gift of tongues. God gave that to me some 25 years ago. But I have to say that doesn't denote whether I am filled by God's spirit or not. I don't believe that. What I believe is how I am filled by God's spirit is me coming under his lordship and his power in my life moment by moment, day by day, every single day of my life so that I am obedient to the workings of his spirit in my life and so that no matter what my circumstances, and I know that some of you have endured horrendous circumstances. I myself and my family have endured hard circumstances this year, but the thing that has kept us going is the experience and the knowledge and the receiving through faith of the Lordship of Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit in my life daily, moment by moment, day by day. It is the outworking of his Spirit through faith. 
that is the mark of a Christian. It is the ability to praise as God, as, as Paul is doing here in him form. It is the ability to praise Jesus Christ in our everyday lives and give him the glory, no matter what our lives are like, no matter what is happening in our lives. It is the ability to model godly behaviour in our lives, no matter what the influences. And next week we're going to look at some of the influences which can lead us from godly living. But the spirit that is of power in our lives can help us to be vindicated and overcome if we allow it. And you know what? We have a responsibility to communicate this mystery to the world. Jesus communicated this mystery. He was seen by angels. And the word seen here is the word from which we get our English word eyeball. Jesus was eyeballed literally by the angels. They watched him all the time. They studied him. That was the idea. He was constantly under the observation of angels. Angels had been used to seeing him in glory previous to the incarnation and how they must have marvelled at how poor and marginalised he became for our sakes so that we could become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. God loved me so much that even though he had a glorious time in heaven with all the heavenly hosts, he was prepared to leave that behind for my sake. And he was preached among the nations. The gospel of Jesus Christ is too good to be kept secret. It's too good for just one nation or people to hold on to. It must be proclaimed throughout the whole world. And that's our mission as the household of God. It rests on us as well as the way that the people of God conduct themselves individually and collectively and the way we uphold the truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ will never, ever be thwarted. It must be preached. It will never be contained. You know, while we were in Vietnam, as I said to you, the overwhelming evidence of, of, of Buddhism everywhere, shrines to Buddha everywhere. And yet what I found fascinating, what I found interesting was the places where people went when they were in despair, when they were in need, when they were ill, where they were broken, the hospitals and the clinics were defined by one thing and one thing only. You know what it was? A cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. It will never, ever be thwarted. It will be proclaimed to a world that is lost, a world that is hurting. And we, Paul is saying, I want you to pause, Timothy. I want you to remind yourself the reason why I'm telling you to act in certain ways. 
because the cross of Jesus Christ and the message of the good news, the mystery that was hidden and that has now been solved must be proclaimed. It must be preached among the nations. It must never, ever be contained because it needs to be believed. That is the conclusion. It needs to be believed. This world needs to know Jesus. If Christ had not been raised from the dead and therefore vindicated, people would not have believed. On earth, the result is that people believe the gospel. Lives have been changed. People from all walks of life have been born again through the gospel. Our message does work. Amen? Our message is important. And lastly, he was taken up to glory. This is a reference to Christ's ascension. Glory was a technical term for the dazzling brightness with which God's presence is encompassed. This line is now saying that Jesus is now in the presence of God, ruling as the vindicated king, the king of kings. We saw that in that DVD. Who is he? He is the king of kings. He went from being humiliated to being exalted. Paul is reminding us that when we give our lives to Christ, it introduces for us a new way of living. The appearance of the God-man, the God that came to earth, that was fully man, that was humiliated and yet exalted, is the essence of how we are to live our life. And that godliness, Paul says, must characterise our household here as it gathers for worship when it relates to the world. It's a pause to remember how to act because you are the church and because the church reflects the one in whom the mystery of ages has been solved. Jesus Christ, our outward behaviour, is always a reflection of our inner beliefs. Now you might think, Gail, I've heard the gospel before. We know how to live. Well, do you? Do you really live moment by moment in communication with the one whom all eternity adores? The world is watching. They're cynical. They don't want to come to church because they see the hypocrisy. They're afraid. For the Vietnamese people, their boundaries of respect and honour for their fellow man became internalised and then it became externalised as we see them remarkably drive without obvious rules yet somehow manage to accomplish good driving etiquette. And I think, would that be possible here in Australia? In the same way as believers as we internalise the person of the mystery revealed, Jesus Christ, as 
We internalise him moment by moment as we love him more and more. Our outward behaviour reflects that inner love and honour. And the world sees it and they wonder and they ask questions and the gospel is further proclaimed and lives are transformed and people are saved. And if this is all happening, then the church, the household of God is doing its work and our purpose of coming together like the big Saturday night dinner celebration of the family when we come together on Sunday is to exhort each other and to build each other up and to remind each other and to pause and say, why are we doing this? Why do we bother? Well, we bother because there is a greater reason at stake and we have a responsibility. The living God resides here. Do you get it? Do you really get it? Do you really know how important it is to love Jesus with all your heart? Your life isn't the only thing at stake here. The salvation of others is also at stake. And Paul is saying scarily that that rests on the way the living church and the members within behave. I think Paul is saying, Timothy, let's stop. Let's reflect yet again on Jesus. He's the reason why we do anything. Let's pause. Let's remember. And I wonder today, what would our church look like if every person who has ever passed through these doors really took the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ seriously, really prioritised their relationship with him and therefore really prioritised their love and commitment to his household? Would your behaviour then reflect your love for Jesus and his household? I wonder if there's some of you here today who've really forgotten how important it is to know the reason why, why we do what we do to make him and his household your priority, to make him and your behaviour which reflects he that is in you to a cynical and hurting world that needs to hear the proclaimed and risen and glorified Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to take a time now, like Paul, to pause. That's what Paul has asked us to do in this part of his letter, to reflect upon this wonderful passage. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you in this time personally about your life and your witness to the life that has given you everything. There might be some of you here this morning that don't know the mystery of godliness, Jesus Christ. <coughs> then in this time, I would pray that if you've come here this morning seeking, that you would ask him to come into your heart so you can know him you know, to complete that beautiful picture of domesticity. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He 
that hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. In this time now, I want to ask you to close your eyes. I want you to respond as the living, resurrected spirit of Jesus Christ leads you and guides you into your response to Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you, Lord, for what you did for us. Thank you that for centuries man asked the question, is God real? And for centuries since, we've had the privilege of saying, definitely. We've also had the privilege of saying, we know what God is like. And that knowledge, Lord Jesus, we pray, should motivate us to love you more and more, but to love each other and to be an incredible witness and proclaim that incredible mystery to a lost, cynical and hurting world. Oh, Lord, I would just pray here this morning that as your spirit has been present as you have been glorified and honoured, as you have been worshipped, as your spirit has spoken to each and every one of us in this place, I would just pray that there is not one of us that does not leave here today committed to being changed more and more by your spirit so that we become more and more like you. Oh, Jesus, let this be our prayer. Oh, Lord, we just thank you in your precious name. Amen.